Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome listeners to your next episode of Dracula Part 7. For those of you who are new to this series, I highly recommend you visit the episode notes and click on the URL that takes you to Part 1 of this series. So that way, you don't miss out on any aspect of Bram Stoker's awesome tale. Last episode, we just began reading into the diary of Mina Murray. And in this episode, we're diving deeper into her life, Dr. Seward, and also the first introduction of Renfield. Turn off the lights, turn up the sound, and let's enjoy this chapter of Dracula together. Fourth July, Whitby. Lucy met me at the station, looking sweeter and lovelier than ever, and we drove up to the house at the Crescent in which they have rooms. This is a lovely place. The little river, the Esk, runs through a deep valley, which broadens out as it comes near the harbour. A great viaduct runs across, with high piers, through which the view seems somehow further away than it really is. The valley is beautifully green, and it is so steep that when you are on the highland on either side, you look right across it, unless you are near enough to see down. The houses of the old town, the side away from us, are all red-roofed, and seemed piled up one over the other anyhow, like the pictures we see of Nuremberg. Right over the town is the ruin of Whitby Abbey, which was sacked by the Danes, and which is the scene of part of Marmion where the girl was built up in the wall. It is a most noble ruin, of immense size and full of beautiful and romantic bits. There is a legend that a white lady is seen in one of the windows. Between it and the town, there is another church, the parish one, round which is a big graveyard and all full of tombstones. This is to my mind the nicest spot in Whitby, for it lies right over the town and has a full view of the harbour and all up the bay to where the headland called Kettleness stretches out into the sea. It descends so steeply over the harbour that part of the bank has fallen away, and some of the graves have been destroyed. In one place, part of the stonework of the graves stretches out over the sandy pathway far below. There are walks with seats beside them through the churchyard, and people go and sit there all day long, looking at the beautiful view and enjoying the breeze. I shall come and sit here very often myself and work. Indeed, I am writing now with my book on my knee and listening to the talk of three old men who are sitting beside me. They seem to do nothing all day but sit up here and talk. The harbour lies below me with, on the far side, one large granite wall stretching out into the sea with a curve outward at the end of it, in the middle of which is a lighthouse. A heavy sea wall runs along outside of it, on the near side, the sea wall makes an elbow crooked inversely, and its end, too, has a lighthouse. Between the two piers, there is a narrow opening in the harbour, which then suddenly widens. It is nice at high water, but when the tide is out, it shoals away to nothing, and there is merely the stream of the Esk, running between banks of sand with rocks here and there. Outside the harbour on this side, there rises for about half a mile a great reef, 
the sharp edge of which runs straight out from behind the south lighthouse. At the end of it is a boy with a bell, which swings in bad weather and sends a mournful sound on the wind. They have a legend here that when a ship is lost, bells are heard out at sea. I must ask the old man about this. He is coming this way. He is a funny old man. He might be awfully old, for his face is all gnarled and twisted like the bark of a tree. He tells me that he is nearly a hundred, and that he was a sailor in the Greenland fishing fleet when Waterloo was fought. He is, I am afraid, a very skeptical person. For when I asked him about the bells at sea, and the white lady at the abbey, he said very brusquely, I wouldn't fash myself about them, miss. Them things be all worn out. Mind, I don't say that they never was, but I do say that they wasn't in my time. They be all very well for comers and drippers and the like, but not for a nice young lady like you. Them feet folks from York and leaves that may be always eating, cured herrings and drinking tea and looking not to buy cheap jet would creed aught. I wonder myself who would be bothering, telling lies to them. Even the newspapers, which is full of foolish talk. I thought he would be a good person to learn interesting things from, so I asked him if he would mind telling me something about the whale fishing in the old days. He was just settling himself to begin when the clock struck six, whereupon he labored to get up and said, I must gang againwards home now, miss. My granddaughter doesn't like to be kept waiting when the tea is ready, for it takes me time to cramble a boon the grease, for there be a many of them, and miss, I like belly timber silly by the clock. He hobbled away, and I could see him hurrying, as well as he could, down the steps. The steps are a great feature of the place. They lead from the town up to the church, there are hundreds of them. I don't know how many, and they wind up in a delicate curve. The slope is so gentle that a horse could easily walk up and down them. I think they must originally have had something to do with the abbey. I shall go home too. Lucy went out visiting with her mother, and as they were only duty calls, I did not go. They will be home by this. 1st August I came up here an hour ago with Lucy, and we had a most interesting talk with my old friend and the two others who always come and join him. He is evidently the Sir Oracle of them, and I should think must have been in his time a most dictatorial person. He will not admit anything, and downfaces everybody. If he can't argue them, he bullies them, and then takes their silence for agreement with his views. Lucy was looking sweetly pretty in her white lawn frock. She has got a beautiful colour since she has been here. I noticed that the old men did not lose any time in coming up and sitting near her when we sat down. She is so sweet with old people. I think they all fell in love with her on the spot. Even my old man succumbed and did not contradict her, but gave me a double share instead. I got him on the subject of the legends, and he went off at once into a sort of sermon. I must try to remember it and put it down. It'll be a fool talk, lock, stock, and barrel. That's what it be, and nought else. 
These bands are Wolfs and Bogos and Burgess and Burgles and all, and at them is only fit to set beyond, and tis the women are belligerent. They be naught but air plebs. They and all grims and signs and warnings be all invented by parsons and ilsumbiok bodies and railway touters to skid and scunner hufflins and to get folks to do something that they don't other incline to. It makes me ireful to think of them. Why, it's them that, not content with printing lies on paper and preaching them out of pulpits, does what to be cutting them out on the tombstones. Look here all around you, in what air you will, all them steeds holding up their heads, as well as they can out of their pride, is a cunt simply tumbling down with the weight of the lies wrote on them. Here lies the body, all sacred to the memory, wrote on all of them, and yet in nigh half of them, there beant no bodies at all. And the memories of them beant cared and pinch or snuff about, much less sacred. Lies, all of them, nothing but lies of one kind or another. By Gog! But it'll be a quas scoundment at the day of judgment when they come tumbling up in their death sarks, all duped together and trying to drag their tombstones with them to prove how good they was. Some of them trembling and dithering with their hands that doesn't and slipping from lying in the sea that they can't even keep their grip of them. I could see from the old fellow's self-satisfied air and the way in which he looked around for the approval of his cronies that he was showing off, so I put in a word to keep him going. Oh, Mr. Swales, you can't be serious. Surely these tombstones are not all wrong. Yablins! There may be a poorish few not wrong saving, where they make out the people too good. For there be folk that do think a balm bowl be like the sea, if only it'll be their own. The old thing be only lies. Now look you here. You come here a stranger and you see this Kirkgarth. I nodded, for I thought it better to assent. Though I did not quite understand his dialect, I knew it had something to do with the church, and he went on. And you can say that all these steens be a boon folk that be happened here, snod and snog? I assented again. Then that be just where the lie comes in. Why, there be scores of these lay beds that be tomb as old Dun's backer box on Friday night. He nudged one of his companions, and they all laughed. And my gog, how could they be otherwise? Look at that one. They have tasked above the beer bank. Read it. I went over and read. Edward Spenslag, Master Mariner, murdered by pirates off the coast of Andres, April 1854. A yet thirty. When I came back, Mr. Swales went on. We brought him home, I wonder, to have him here. Murdered off the coast of Andres, and you consented his body lay under. Why, I could name ye a dozen whose bones lie in the Greenland seas above, he pointed northwards. Or where the currents may have drifted them, there may be the steens around ye. Ye can, with your young eyes, read the small print of the lies from here. This Braithwaite, Lowry, I knew his father, lost in the lively of Greenland in twenty or Andrew Woodhouse, drowned in the same seas of 1777. Or John Paxton, 
drowned off Cape Farewell a year later, or old John Rawlings, whose grandfather sailed with me, drowned in the Gulf of Finland in 50. Do you think that all these men will have to make a rush to Whitby when their trumpet sounds? I have me anthems about it. I tell ye that when ye got here they'd be jumbling and a jostling one another that way that it'd be like a fight up on the ice in the old days when we'd be at one another from daylight to dark and trying to tie up our cuts by the light of the aurora borealis. This was evidently local pleasantry, for the old man cackled over it and his cronies joined in with gusto. But, I said, surely you are not quite correct. For you start on the assumption that all the poor people, or their spirits, will have to take their tombstones with them on the Day of Judgment. Do you think that will be really necessary? Well, what else be they tombstones for? Answer me that, miss! To please their relatives, I suppose. To please their relatives, you suppose? This he said with intense scorn. How will it please their relatives? To know what lies is wrote over them, and that everybody in the place knows that they be lies. He pointed to a stone at our feet, which had been laid down as a slab, on which the seat was rested close to the edge of the cliff. Read the lies on that Throfstein, he said. The letters were upside down to me from where I sat, but Lucy was more opposite to them. So she leant over and read, Sacred to the memory of George Cannon, who died, in the hope of a glorious resurrection on July 29, 1873, falling from the rocks at Kettleness. This tomb was erected by his sorrowing mother to her dearly beloved son. He was the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Really, Mr. Swartz, I don't see anything very funny in that. She spoke her comment very gravely and somewhat severely. You don't see aught funny? <laughs> but that's because ye don't gone. The sorrowing mother was a hellcat that hated him because he was awkward. A regular lameter he was. And he hated her so that he committed suicide in order that she mightn't get insurance she put on his life. He blew nigh the top of his head off with an old musket that they had for scarring the clothes with. Torrent for clothes then, for it brought the clegs and the dopes to him. That's the way he fell off the rocks. And, as the hopes of a glorious resurrection, I often heard him say myself that he had hoped he'd go to hell, for his mother was so pious that she'd be sure to go to heaven, and he didn't want to addle where she was. Now isn't that stain at any rate? He hammered it with his stick as he spoke. Pack of lies, and won't it make Gabriel kickle when Georgie comes panting up the grease with the tombstone balance on his hump? and asks it to be took as evidence. I didn't know what to say, but Lucy turned the conversation as she said, rising up. Oh, why did you tell us of this? It is my favorite seat, and I cannot leave it. And now, I find I must go on sitting over the grave of a suicide. That won't harm ye, my pretty, and it may make poor Jordy Gladstone to have so trim a lass sitting on his lap. That won't hurt ye. Why, I sat here off and on for nigh twenty years past, and it hasn't done me no harm. Don't ye fash about them as lies under ye, or that doesn't lie there either. It'll be time for ye to be getting scot when ye see the tombstones all run away, and the place as bare as a stubble field. 
There's the clock and I must gang. My service to ye, ladies. And off he hobbled. Lucy and I sat a while, and it was all so beautiful before us that we took hands as we sat. And she told me all over again about Arthur and their coming marriage. That made me just a little heartsick, for I haven't heard from Jonathan for a whole month. The same day, I came up here alone, for I am very sad. There was no letter for me. I hope there cannot be anything the matter with Jonathan. The clock has just struck nine. I see the lights scattered all over the town, sometimes in rows where the streets are, and sometimes singingly. They run right up the esque and die away in the curve of the valley. To my left, the view is cut off by a black line of roof of the old house next to the abbey. The sheep and lambs are bleating in the fields away behind me, and there is a clatter of a donkey's hoofs up the paved row below. The band on the pier is playing a harsh waltz in good time, and further along the quay there is a Salvation Army meeting in the back street. Neither of the bands hear the other, but up here, I hear and see them both. I wonder where Jonathan is, and if he is thinking of me. I wish he were here. Dr. Seward's Diary, 5th of June The case of Renfield grows more interesting the more I get to understand the man. He has certain qualities, very largely developed, selfishness, secrecy, and purpose. I wish I could get the object of which is the latter. He seems to have some settled scheme of his own, but what it is I do not yet know. His redeeming quality is a love of animals, though indeed he has such curious turns in that I sometimes imagine he is only abnormally cruel. His pets are of odd sorts, just now his hobby is catching flies. He has at present such a quantity that I have had myself to expostulate. To my astonishment, he did not break out into a fury, as I expected, but took the matter in simple seriousness. He thought for a moment and then said, May I have three days? I shall clear them away. Of course, I said, that would do. I must watch him. 18th June. He has turned his mind now to spiders, and has got several very big fellows in a box. He keeps feeding them with his flies, and the number of the latter is becoming sensibly diminished, although he has used half his food in attracting more flies from outside to his room. 1st July. His spiders are now becoming as great a nuisance as his flies, and today I told him that he must get rid of them. He looked very sad at this, so I said that he must clear out some of them, at all events. He cheerfully acquiesced, and in this, I gave him the same time as before for reduction. He disgusted me much while with him, for when a horrid blowfly, bloated with some carrion food, buzzed into the room, he caught it, held it exultantly for a few moments between his fingers and thumb, and, before I knew what he was going to do, put it in his mouth and ate it. I scolded him for it, but he argued quietly that it was very good and very wholesome that it was life, strong life, and gave life to him. This gave me an idea, or the rudiment of one. I must watch how he gets rid of his spiders. He has evidently some deep problem in his mind, for he keeps a little notebook in which he is always jotting down something. 
whole pages of it are filled with masses of figures, generally single numbers added up in batches, and then the totals added in batches again, as though he were focusing some account, as the auditors put it. 8th July. There is a method in his madness, and the rudimentary idea in my mind is growing. It will be a whole idea soon, and then, oh, unconscious cerebration. You will have to give the wall to your conscious bother. I kept away from my friend for a few days so that I might notice if there was any change. Things remain as they were except that he has parted with some of his pets and got a new one. He has managed to get a sparrow and has already partially tamed it. His means of taming is simple, for already the spiders have diminished. Those that do not remain, however, are well fed, for he still brings in the flies by tempting them with his food. 19th July We are progressing. My friend has now a whole colony of sparrows and his flies and spiders are almost obliterated. When I came in, he ran to me and said he wanted to ask me a great favour. A very, very great favour. And as he spoke, he fawned on me like a dog. I asked him what it was, and he said with a sort of rapture in his voice and bearing, A kitten! A nice little sleek, playful kitten! that I can play with and teach and feed and feed and feed. I was not unprepared for this request, for I had noticed how his pets went on increasing in size and vivacity, but I did not care that his pretty family of tame sparrows should be wiped out in the same manner as the flies and the spiders, so I said I would see about it and asked him if he would not rather have a cat than a kitten. His eagerness betrayed him as he answered, Oh yes, I would like a cat. I only ask for kittens lest you should refuse me a cat. No one would refuse me a kitten, would they? I shook my head and said that at present I feared it would not be possible, but that I would see about it. His face fell, and I could see a warning of danger in it, for there was a sudden fierce, sidelong look which meant killing. The man is an undeveloped homicidal maniac. I shall test him with his present craving and see how it will work out. Then I shall know more. 10pm. I have visited him again and found him sitting in a corner brooding. When I came in, he threw himself on his knees before me and implored me to let him have a cat, that his salvation depended upon it. I was firm, however, and told him that he could not have it, whereupon he went without a word and sat down, gnawing his fingers in the corner where I had found him. I shall see him in the morning early. 20th July Visited Renfield very early, before the attendant went his rounds. Found him up and humming a tune. He was spreading out his sugar, which he had saved in the window, and was manifestly beginning his flycatching again, and beginning it cheerfully and with a good grace. I looked around for his birds and, not seeing them, asked him where they were. He replied, without turning around, that they had all flown away. There were a few feathers about the room and on his pillow a drop of blood. I said nothing, but went and told the keeper to report to me if there were anything odd about him during the day. 11am. The attendant has just been to me to say that Renfield has been very sick and has disgorged a whole lot of feathers. 
My belief is, Doctor, he said, that he has eaten his birds and that he just took and ate them raw. 11pm. I gave Renfield a strong opiate tonight, enough to make even him sleep, and took away his pocketbook to look at it. The thought that has been buzzing about my brain lately is complete, and the theory proved my homicidal maniac is of a peculiar kind. I shall have to invent a new classification for him and call him a Zufagius, life-eating maniac. What he desires is to absorb as many lives as he can, and he has laid himself out to achieve it in a cumulative way. He gave many flies to one spider and many spiders to one bird, and then wanted a cat to eat the many birds. What would have been his latter steps? It would almost be worthwhile to complete the experiment. It might be done if there were only a sufficient cause. Men sneered at vivisection and yet look at its results today. Why not advance science in its most difficult and vital aspect, the knowledge of the brain? Had I even the secret of one such mind? Did I hold the key to the fancy of even one lunatic? I might advance my own branch of science to a pitch compared with which Burden Sanderson's physiology or Ferrier's brain knowledge would be as nothing. If only there were a sufficient cause. I must not think too much of this, or I may be tempted. A good cause might turn the scale with me. Do I not have an exceptional brain, congenitally? How well the man reasoned. Lunatics always do within their own scope. I wonder how many lives he values a man, or if at only one. He has closed the account most accurately, and today began a new record. How many of us began a new record with each day of our lives? To me, it seemed only yesterday that my whole life ended with my new hope, and that truly I began a new record. So it will be until the great recorder sums me up and closes my ledger account with a balance to profit or loss. Oh, Lucy, Lucy, I cannot be angry with you, nor can I be angry with my friend, whose happiness is yours. But I must only wait on hopelessness and work. Work, work. If I only could have a stronger cause as my poor mad friend there, a good unselfish cause to make me work, that would be indeed happiness. So ends part seven of Dracula, and we're learning that Mina is becoming increasingly worried about Jonathan Harker's whereabouts, rightfully so with his absence of communication. On top of that, we meet Renfield, his passion for entomophagy, and the desire to take life. Ah yes, a sad and maddened soul indeed. What did you think of the old men? Their dialect, their lingo. It was so different than what I've ever heard of before. For those of you who are wondering what the heck they were talking about, they were saying that what's written on the graves in the area they live in, that annotated their death, is really not how these men died, and that death is all around them. The discussion of the dead, or rather the dead rising, fits in narratively to the theme of the dead returning to life with tasks left to do, and a spirit burning strong. I found this sidetrack from the story quite interesting, and it added a sense of mortality to the characters in this tale. That Mina is indeed in a real world where people die terrible deaths, and that death is not always a release, but cruel, with their loved ones who should be loving them, standing to benefit from those deaths. I really found Bram Stoker's choice on this 
fascinating. Mates, it's time for our mini stories that I write just for those that support this podcast at the Ode Night Tea Titan level and the White Tea Warlord level. This is my chance to say thank you back to my brilliant supporters. And that includes my old grain forces at the end. Let's jump right on in. Maya, riddled land. In the Martians of Carpathian mountainsides is a sunken land of grass that spans acres wide. This, my avid adventurers, is the riddled land. Upon first glance, one would think that the land itself is merely a grassland with splotches of black and brown, and a land that is unfed and unattended to. This would be an adventurer's first mistake. The riddled land is in fact heavily afflicted by a malignant blight. A dark cancer that consumes the land and all those its terrifying edge touches. There are stories of bands of merchants taking these lands as shortcuts past the dark woods and in between the flaming forests that block the main pathway to Dracula's Keep. And when they do, a horror befalls them. Once setting foot on these lands, the men are afflicted with a haze. They begin to stumble. Blood begins to trickle from their fingertips, and they begin to float, levitating meters into the air, lifeless, almost already corpse-like. At this point, your fate is sealed, as the invisible tendrils slowly drain your life force over a manner of months. Yes, months. The torture seems to never end. So for any adventurer walking this path, they will see their unfortunate companions as a warning to the hellish fate that awaits them should they travel the riddled lands and ignore their warning. Solstra, Echo Stone. Deep beneath the riddled lands lies a secret, one so coveted that a cult of resounding sound guards to this day. The Echo Stone, a relic from when magic was free-flowing and the world was a wonderment of wisps, and planar walking was the freedom given to those that would embrace the magic weave. The stone possesses the ability to affect dual timelines, and has only been used once to entrap Dracula in the very keep that he resides in to this day. Two knights were brought to touch the Echo Stone, creating ripples through time that allowed their past selves and future selves to create a network of planar defenders. For you see, it is not the physical, or the mental that stifles magic or Dracula's use of the dark forces. It is the prevention and foresight that eliminates Dracula as a threat in the first place, and this is what the Gracie understood. In doing so, they bound Dracula to items in different planes of existence that would pull and draw power away upon any sign of him enacting his full force on humanity. At every turn where he would gain more power, a time shift pulls him and his keep into a different reality with different limitations. And herein lies the power of the Echo Stone, a trap of time with an eternal and unrelenting guardian. Mates, today I wanted to talk about the land that Dracula lives on and to dig deeper into the ethos of what binds Dracula to our world, specifically the magical dangers that could have existed around his lands. I hope you enjoyed hearing these mini tales as much as I enjoyed writing them. Thank you so much for your support. And my brilliant white tea warlords. I own cows, teeth burrows. The land around Dracula is cursed with many a creature, and within the land themselves, they birth demons, imps, and gnashes that live in the earth deep below its crust, festering and growing. And the teeth burrows is the den of such a place that holds within it treasures like no other. 
long-lost relics snatched away by Dracula's henchmen and buried by the creatures that live in that place. During the second of Dracula's major attacks on the town surrounding his keep, the Teeth Burrows was created initially as a defense from the humans that would invade and also investigate Dracula. The dark magics were used to initially deter and keep them at bay. When Dracula realized that the lands themselves could be used as an offensive, his strategy changed. Overnight, Dracula raided three nearby towns and harvested 400 corpses, laying them meticulously down at the end of his keep in a sort of barrier against an unseen force. Two onlookers' corpses were being floated down to the countryside and were too scared to do anything or even move. They could only observe. Once Dracula had created the line around his keep of corpses, he began the transformation of his lands. The bodies began to convulse, their flesh twisted, and their bones elongated, fracturing and reshaping, building into it a fortress of white and crimson bone. And then it growed, slicing into the earth and creating the teeth burrows that the populace fear to this day. Lee Bauer, the Lake of Cruel Confines. In the cursed land that Dracula controls lies within it a small lake, whose torturous trappings give the people within these lands nightmares to this day. The Lake of Cruel Confines brings upon the world true horrors, and imbued with a portion of Dracula's dark magic at an ongoing capacity, meaning Dracula specifically expends energy to keep this lake's magical conduit fueled. When wars were fought over his lands, men slayed themselves rather than wade through the waters of this lake, where your worst nightmares would come true, and Dracula's men would force armies through it. The lake itself is a work of art, both visually but also in power. When a person, a living creature, and it must be living, enters that lake, they leave that lake as something very, very different. The effect takes on as one's whole body is immersed, and your mind fades away and your body begins to bend, warp, and flex in ways that the mind struggles to comprehend. For the lake rebuilds you, breaks you down, and restructures you over and over to what you once were is long gone and you are now nothing but flesh, evil and malice. The lake breaks the spirit, trapped forever in the body of the damned and your soul forever lost in the darkness that is unrelenting. This is why they fear the lake of cruel confines. I wanted to continue the trend, mates, regarding the landscape and Dracula's power. These were definitely darker and more sinister than usual, but I wanted to spice it up in this space with what I could come up with to explore Dracula's true evil power. I hope you enjoyed your malevolent tales. And now for my awesome El Grey Enforcers. Chad Warren, Just Heather, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Divided by Zero, Tristan Cassidy, and Dolphin and Cow. Thank all of you for being brilliant and supporting this show. Have a fantastic weekend, and I'll see you Monday for more Old Time Radio, and next week, something different is on its way. So join me then, I can't wait. Thanks mates, and as always, till next we meet.